You're listening to a Soulfire Productions podcast. Welcome to Wellness Realness, where we get very real about all things health and wellness, physical, mental, financial, and spiritual. I'm your host, Christina Rice, a nutritional therapy practitioner and energy healer turned holistic business coach for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm here to help you up-level every aspect of your life. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You can find an endless amount of content from me and join my online membership at christinaricewellness.com. And if you want exclusive behind-the-scenes content and my most unfiltered self, DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to Wellness Realness Crew on Instagram and request to follow my super secret account. You can also join the Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe Facebook group to hang out with other listeners in the crew. Get ready for some wellness realness. I have an amazing guest on today's show, Drew Manning. When I first heard his story a few years ago, I was blown away and have been following him since. And he is just such a great guy with such a great heart. And he puts so much out there and really just has this genuine desire to help as many people as possible. And if you are not yet familiar with Drew's story, we're going to go into a bit of what got him a lot of media attention a few years back, but he is the New York Times bestselling author of the book Fit to Fat to Fit. And he is best known for his Fit to Fat to Fit experiment. It went viral when he did it. He was featured on shows like Dr. Oz, Good Morning America, and The View. And then his experiment became a hit TV show called Fit to Fat to Fit. And now he has a new book called Complete Keto. So he's doing a lot of amazing things. And like I said, we'll get into the whole story in the interview, but Drew was a personal trainer who decided to put on a lot of weight on purpose and then lose it again so that he could better understand the clients he was working with. You can find transformation photos online, all over. It's such an incredible experiment. And I was really excited to talk to him more about that in today's show and also a bit about how his spiritual beliefs have changed over the years. We talk about a lot of interesting things. So I'm really excited for you to hear it and definitely connect further with Drew on Instagram. His handle is at fit to fat to fit and on his website, fit to fat to fit.com. You can check out his books and his keto program and his podcast. Everything is fit to fat to fit. And after this episode, you are definitely going to want to dive into all of his content. And if you want the video version of this podcast, it is in the Uplevel membership. Don't forget that I pre-release podcast episodes quite quite a bit before they release on the actual podcast. I post them in the Uplevel membership and it's the video version so you can see the uncut video versions. If you love that, check out the membership. It is the place to be to connect further with a community of like-minded women who love all things wellness, but also want to dive deeper into intuition and manifestation. We have monthly Q&A calls where you can ask me any of your questions. And we also have monthly manifestation parties, a lot of fun, plus an epic library of hundreds of blog posts and video trainings about all things related to health, wellness, spirituality, manifestation, 
all the good stuff. So definitely check that out before doors close. It's a monthly membership, but doors are closing August 17th. So get in on that before it is too late. You have a week left. You can sign up and learn more at christinaricewellness.com slash membership. And I will also remind you that doors are officially open for the next round of No Bullshit Business School. So if you are a health coach, a trainer, an energy healer, a nutritionist, an NTP, any type of coach, and you want to build a six-figure online coaching business with no paid ads, just good energy and Instagram, then this is for you. I cover all things marketing, business, how to be an effective coach, tapping into your intuition and balancing your masculine and feminine energies, manifestation, mastering your energetics overall to build a business in flow so you can work smarter, not harder. You'll be in an amazing community of like-minded, high-vibe women, and it will change your life far beyond just business. It, It is... I don't even have words. It's amazing. Check out the testimonials. The program starts October 5th, but enrollment is now. There are limited spaces, and I really recommend signing up sooner rather than later before spots fill up. You can find all information for that on my website, christinaricewellness.com, and just click on the business tab. Those are my updates for this week. So now we're going to hop into this interview with Drew Manning, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. So enjoy. There are some key things I do every day to make sure I am functioning at my best, super productive, and also able to tap in fully intuitively. And one of those is taking full spectrum hemp oil every single day. There is a lot of BS out there about CBD and so many different companies on the market, but most of these companies are not even putting the amount of CBD they claim to in the bottles, and they often don't pay attention to quality which then affects efficacy, which is why I love Ned Full Spectrum Hemp Oil. I have been using this every single day for years and I cannot live without it. It is a full spectrum hemp oil that is the highest quality out there. They only extract from hemp flowers, not the stalks and seeds of the hemp plant like other companies. And they use a very gentle, slow ethanol-based extraction method done at room temperature. So there is no high heat or high pressure used. And of course, there are no isolates or synthetic ingredients. Unfortunately, a lot of other companies will use CBD isolates. And one of the main reasons why Ned is so amazing is because the product includes CBD as well as the full range of phytocannabinoids in addition to the cannabidiol. That is what creates the entourage effect, which is really behind the true healing powers of hemp. And there are no flavors or fillers. It's just the full range of phytocannabinoids and non-GMO MCT oil. Ned Full Spectrum Hemp Oil supports the endocannabinoid system, our body's balancing system, which is how it has so many incredible benefits, including helping with anxiety, depression, PTSD. It works as an anti-inflammatory. It can help with sleep, especially if you have insomnia. It also is a rich source of antioxidants and it can help balance out hormones. Their natural cycle collection is something I recommend to every woman It is incredible for balancing out the period. And for me, it was so helpful with balancing out my period after I struggled with amenorrhea for a few years. And any woman who has PMS or bad period symptoms, you definitely need to check out their natural cycle collection. But if you're looking for a really powerful anti-inflammatory and something to help reduce any anxiety or depression, help you feel balanced and calm throughout the day and support your sleep, then check out their full spectrum hemp oil. I've been using the 750 milligram. Every evening, I put a dropper's worth under my tongue, hold it there for 30 seconds, and then I'm good to go. 
you haven't used CBD unless you have tried Ned. It is the best stuff out there. If you want to try it out, you can go to helloned.com and use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. Again, that's helloned.com and use that code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. I cannot wait to hear how much you love it. Drew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I have been so excited to chat with you. And for my listeners who aren't familiar with you yet, can you just tell my audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Christina, for having me on. So most people know me as the fit to fit to fit guy. And if you use Google that, you'll see what it is. But basically, in a nutshell, um, so back in 2011, I had this crazy idea. Um, you know, I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters, and I, we all played sports. I played football and wrestling. So I've always been in shape my entire life. And I became a personal trainer. And then I had this idea, what if, and it sounds crazy, what if I got fat on purpose? And the reason that uh, that entered my mind was because here I was, someone who had never been overweight a day in their life, trying to help people who were overweight pretty much the majority of their life. And what did I know about helping them? I didn't know anything. I thought it was easy. Like, hey, guys, why don't you just put down the junk food and go to the gym? Like, why is it so hard for you just to live this lifestyle? It's not that hard. And and they would tell me, you know, Drew, you don't understand how hard it is. Like for you, it's easy. And so I was thinking of ideas. And for whatever reason, this idea of gaining weight on purpose made sense for me for some reason. And I decided to embark on that journey and uh, gain 75 pounds in six months. I stopped exercising, ate whatever I wanted to, which was pretty much a standard American diet. Put on 75 pounds of pure fat in six months. Documented the whole thing on YouTube and on my website. And then luckily got back to fit. And so that's why it's called fit to fat to fit. And the, the biggest lessons um, that I took away from that is one, transformation is way more mental and emotional than I ever imagined. I thought it was just calories and macros and workouts and supplements and just do it and you'll see results until I went through this, embarked on this journey. And then the second thing was I'm way more of an empathetic person now having done this because I was truly humbled. I was wrong the way I approached health and fitness. I'm, I used to think it was so simple. Um, and then having gone through this experience, it really shifted my perception of just how hard it really is. And I only did it for six months. I'm not pretending to know exactly what it's like. But for me, I can say that I was truly humbled. And now I come from a place of empathy first uh, and helping people more so on the mental and emotional side than just the physical side like I used to. So that's mm -hmm. me in a nutshell. Yeah. And I have so many questions about this experiment. So I sure. mean, when you, you make it sound like, was it just kind of like, you decided one day to do that? You make it sound like it just... <laughs> it was like so I was thinking of ideas of how I could better relate to my clients and what I could do. And it was one of those moments where just this light bulb, light bulb went off. It was just like the idea was implanted in my brain. And then it felt almost like a calling. I don't know if you've ever felt like a calling to do something. Mm -hmm. But even though it was crazy, it felt like a calling to me. Like, this is your path, <laughs> you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing from the universe. And I was like, okay, I think I'm going to do this. And so that's kind of where the idea came from. It wasn't like researching or, or, you know, looking into it or asking people. It just popped up my head. And then I instantly called people. I called my friends, called my wife at the time. I was like, hey, what do you guys think about this idea? It's kind of crazy. And I was like, oh my gosh, you should totally do it. And uh, what's funny is my wife at the time, she was pregnant. And so she was like, so you're, you're telling me we're gonna have junk food in the house finally? And, 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 you know, donuts and cookies. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah. She's like, okay. For sure. You should definitely do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did anybody say no? Uh, yes, my mom. My mom was worried about my health. <laughs> you oh, know, okay. as a mom should. Yeah. You know, she was like, oh, I don't know. Your heart. What happened? Like, what happened? So anyways, yeah, um, she was the only one that was kind of worried about my health. 
Okay. Well, I, I do want to say though, I really honor you for like trying to think of ways to relate to your clients because I think a lot of trainers hear that feedback and they just, it's just resistance. And it's like, no, like, you know, they, they just, they're not going to push further, but you had to emotionally get to a place of like, no, I agree. I actually haven't experienced that before. And a lot of people can't get there or, or admit that. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. You know, in my first book, Fit to Fit to Fit, I talked about this of me and a lot of people are in this category where we're on top of this mountain of fitness. Like we've been blessed with good genetics. We have discipline. We have the knowledge that, you know, the Instagram models, we're up here on, t- on the, the mountaintop and all everyone else that's trying to get in shape is at the bottom. And from the top, it looks so easy. We're like, here you guys, here's the meal plans. Here's the workouts. The path is just right here. It's so, it looks so much easier from the top. Mm-hmm. For me, for the first time in my, in my life, I came down from that mountain and looking up was a totally different perspective. Like I was truly humbled. I was, I realized how wrong I was about that journey up. I'm like, Oh, it's just so simple. Just do it. Like, you know, food addiction doesn't exist. That's just a lack of willpower. Um, and so that's where the empathy started to build. And mm-hmm. I think this world needs more empathy, especially in the fitness industry. But right now, especially this world needs more empathy coming down to someone's level to truly understand why they think the way they think, why they believe the way they believe, like like how they see the world. That's what empathy is really about. It's not, it's listening to understand someone's perspective instead of listening to judge, criticize and respond, which is what we see on social media and people tend to do. For me, I, I tried to truly understand where people were coming from so that I could gain a better understanding. And that's kind of where the humbling aspect came in. And that's where I realized just how wrong I was. So um, fortunately it, it was something that I have no regrets doing. Like I, I don't regret doing what I did. It's crazy. It's risky. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some people that didn't know me really well called it a publicity stunt, but if they knew me and they saw my, my videos on YouTube, you'll see, you know, just how truly humbled I was and how mm-hmm. hard, how hard of a, a journey it was for me personally. And, and that's the thing is like, I, I, no one cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And that's something I live by now because we see all these fitness gurus and trainers and, uh, you know, you could have all the certifications, you could have all the knowledge in the world. But if you don't know how to relate to your clients or the people you're trying to help, if you can't connect with them and they don't feel like you truly care about them, a lot of people aren't going to listen to what you have to say, no matter how right you are. Um, and so for me, that's something that I truly live by after doing this fit fit, fit experience was is, is now, you know, if I could... Ch- care about someone first and foremost, they're going to be more willing to listen to what I have to say to truly help them. And they'll mm-hmm. trust me more. There's that relatability factor now having done something like this. And so, yeah, it, it was, was worth the risk in the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that you said that. I mean, I work with so many different types of coaches and especially like in the Instagram marketing world. And I'm like, lead with your story because that's what gives you credibility. And especially with a market that can you know, be saturated. And there's so many people here, like people are going to want to work with somebody because they see the compassion and empathy in you and because you get it right. It's like, what makes you different than the guy next to you that has the same level of information, like nutrition, knowledge, fitness, knowledge. (laughs) It it is the compassion and the empathy in the story really, because people connect with people. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I feel like that's kind of what set me apart. You look at the fitness industry, it's saturated with people that with big muscles and six pack abs and they have the certifications, they have the knowledge, they look great. But to your average person out there, they're like, okay, that's unrelatable for me. Like, like that's not me. That's not going to be me. Some people don't want to look that way. And mm-hmm. so you have to realize that and you have to know your audience. And so for me, I was like, okay, 
I'm willing to sacrifice my body temporarily to hopefully gain a better understanding. And I'm not going to say I have a complete understanding. I don't want people to get me wrong and, and think, oh, now Drew thinks he knows what it's like. Like, no, it's totally different. I was overweight for six months. Mm-hmm. I had muscle memory. I had the discipline. I had the knowledge. You know, I didn't grow up overweight. There's no way I could mimic or recreate that experience, no matter how much weight I gained, right? Or how long I kept it on for. So, you know, but I at least have a better understanding versus who I was before. Yeah, definitely. So at the time when you started this, this experiment, mm-hmm. were you training everyone like in a gym and what was your demographic like? I'm curious. That's a good question. So actually, a lot of people don't know this about me. I had a full-time job in the medical field, but I was a per- part-time personal trainer. Okay. So personal training wasn't my full-time job. Um, that was kind of my side gig. And I would actually travel to people's homes or their gyms, or they would come into my house and I would train them. And I actually decided to stop training clients during the journey. And it's funny because I felt like I'd be too tempted to want to work out. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I was like a, a, a drug addict being around drugs. Like I was like, I can't be in the gym because then I'm yeah. going to want to work out. And so I decided to not train clients for my entire Fit to Fit to Fit journey, which was a good thing because when Fit to Fit to Fit went viral organically, Every TV show was calling, you know, I got the book deal that happened. I I had to write a book. And so I had to quit my job in the medical field to pursue this full time. There's no way I could have had clients at the same time. But it would have made for, you know, it would have made it very interesting to see me as an overweight trainer (laughs) training clients. And, you know, we did that on the TV show. So I don't know if you know, we had two seasons of a TV show. One was was on A&E, one was on Lifetime. But the trainers on the show, we made them continue to train their clients throughout the show. Mm. So they got that, you know, those eyes of judgment, like, that's your trainer? Like, mm. okay, that something looks a little bit off. He's like 50 pounds overweight, but mm-hmm. okay, you know? And so it was really interesting, uh, but I didn't do that. I kind of purposely focused on just the gaining weight aspect yeah. and, and uh, yeah, just kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, ate my emotions <laughs> throughout the six months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a whole other psychological aspect too, too though, like being a trainer and feeling overweight. Like, yeah, that, I mean, that's a whole other thing. Um, and for people choosing who they want to work with and realizing how much we judge other people based on how they look whenever we're choosing anything. I mean, it can be trainers, it can be nutritionists, but there yeah. are a lot of, um, I was going to say there are a lot of overweight doctors, but I won't go there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your job in the medical field? So it was something called neuromonitoring. And I bet none of your followers have ever heard of what that is. It's a very small niche in the medical industry. So basically what it is, is we would monitor patients' nervous system during back or neck surgery. Um, And so when the doctors are working close to the spinal cord, they're near the nerve roots, right? The nerve Mm -hmm. endings go into the spinal cord. And so they had to be really careful because when they're doing surgery, they could accidentally cut a nerve and paralyze someone. which has happened before. And so we would go in, hook up needles to the patient uh, while they're under and monitor their nervous system and give the doctor live feedback. Like, hey, you're getting close to the left L5. Be careful. He's like, okay, thanks. I can I can see it now or uh, I'll be careful. And so anyways, that's kind of what it was in that show. <laughs> okay, interesting. All right, yeah. so you decided you're going to do this experiment and you're not going to train people. So what, 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 what was your goal? Was it like, I'm just going to keep eating until I'm... Until it's been six months, or I'm going to hit this goal weight, or like what was the plan? So originally, I was I was actually going to do it for a year, gain weight for a year. And luckily, my ex-wife, who's definitely smarter than I am, she's like, "How about just do it for six months and see how you feel?" Because I, I think a year would have been too long. People would have like 
tuned out and gotten bored of the whole thing. But I decided to do it for six months, no matter how much weight I gained. Now, I didn't know how much weight I would gain. I kind of threw it out there like maybe 60 pounds, you know, 10 pounds a month. That's that's pretty doable. Um, and I ended up gaining 76 pounds. So the, the structure of it was six months of gaining weight, six months of losing weight, no matter how much weight I gained in those six months. And then and then six months of, of you know, losing the weight where I had to walk the walk and, and show yeah. people, okay, this is how you lose the weight. <laughs> All right. So walk me through the weight gain process. Like what were sure. you eating? <laughs> how, what were you feeling? What was happening? So first of all, it was really, really fun in the beginning. I'll be totally honest with you guys. It was like a kid in a candy store. I went to the grocery store, skipped the produce section, went down the cereal aisle, the cookie aisle. Like here in America, it's we have so much abundance of variety of food. Like why do we need hundreds of flavors of cereal? I don't know, but we do. And it's amazing. It really was. I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't tried this brand or that brand. Like there's so many snacks and, and, and treats out there. So at first it really was fun because at first I didn't feel too sick right away. Um, you know, the first two to three weeks I would say were kind of in that fun phase, and then little things I noticed started to change. So I started snoring at night, which my uh, wife at the time did not appreciate, but it, it affected my sleep. So I wasn't sleeping as efficiently, which affected my energy levels throughout the day, which affected my mood, which affected my hormones, which in the end affected my personality. Um, and then uh, walking up the stairs, I was out of breath. You know, just something as simple as that. And I remember a couple times bending over to tie my shoes and I was like, I can't breathe. <laughs> like I can't, like, like all the visceral fat around my organs was just pushing everything in. And I've never experienced that before. And it was funny because my wife at the time was pregnant and she's like, now you know what it's like to be pregnant. You know? <laughs> so I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. You know, all these little things I took for granted, like, like being able to breathe as you're tying your shoes. Like right now I, I'm bending over, mm -hmm. I can breathe just fine. But back then I was like, I, I never experienced that. So little things started to change slowly. And then about probably like a month, month and a half in, I was so, I was like, this is so much harder than I thought it was going to be just because of how miserable I felt. Because here's what would happen. I would wake up for breakfast. I would have a standard American breakfast, which you can probably guess is some type of sugary cereal. Because a kid like me growing up in the 80s, they would show TV commercials of a complete American breakfast. And guess what it was? <laughs> it was a bowl of sugary cereal tall glass of juice and a piece of toast. Like, yeah. oh yeah, the perfect American breakfast. So I was like, yeah, that's what we eat here. So I had a big, <laughs> <laughs> big bowl of cinnamon toast crunch, tall glass of juice. But guess what? An hour later, I'm absolutely starving. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like shaking, right? Because I need that, sh I got that high from that sugar rush that I just ate. And then what happens is you, you crash. And after that crash, it creates this vicious cycle of wanting that high again. And that's where people become addicted. You create mm -hmm. this vicious cycle of these, sugar spikes, uh, these blood sugar levels just, you know, spiking so high and then you get a crash and then it's that crash where you feel that hangry, you know, the hangry feeling mm -hmm. and your, your, your blood sugar drops and you just need something quick. So it kind of becomes very addictive really quickly. I noticed that. And so the food was kind of like my vice. It was, it was my savior, but also my demise. Like it, I felt it made me feel good temporarily, but it was also what's caused me to feel bad. And so it became, because here's the thing, exercise was my um, outlet before, is my therapy. Now I don't have that. Guess what my therapy became? Food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was very interesting how, how that made me feel and how addictive it became so quickly. Um, so yeah, the types of foods that I, I was eating, uh, you know, we've all seen, at least I, I, I'm assuming most people have seen Supersize Me. If you haven't, mm -hmm. go watch it. It's a documentary. 
about McDonald's. And I think most Americans know fast food is unhealthy for us. You know, we, we still eat it for some reason, but, but we know, okay, stay away from fast food. So I wanted to focus on everyday American foods that we grew up on in the 70s and 80s. So things like sugary cereal, white pasta, white bread, uh, chips, cookies, crackers, granola bars, juices, um, you know, hot pockets, uh, macaroni and cheese, spaghettios, top ramen, these foods that are so affordable, one, they're, they're cheaper than real food. They taste amazing. I'll be totally honest with you. Cinnamon Toast Crunch is like crack cocaine for me. Yeah. So good. <laughs> and they're convenient. Like they're, they're already ready to go and they taste good right out of the box. You don't have to cook them. There's no preparation involved. And so the mm-hmm. hyper palatability of these foods becomes very addictive. It's cheaper than real food. So I was like, oh yeah, I can feed my family for, you know, five bucks or 10 bucks. And versus if I buy the, all the ingredients and, and make it myself, there's hours of my day wasted and it's more expensive. So our, our society has it backwards, you know, where people gravitate towards the path of least resistance. And guess what that food is? It's these uh, pr- highly processed, cheap foods that are subsidized by the government so that these products are cheaper than real food. So that's mm-hmm. the issue that we have here in America. But that's the food that I decided to focus on. And that's what I attribute my 75 pound weight gain to was, was eating those foods. You know, I didn't stuff my face every single meal. I didn't do a super, you know, supersize me like he had to do every meal. I ate till I was full. And then mm. when I was hungry, I ate again and mm-hmm. I put on 75 pounds. It's really interesting that you like followed satiety signals that were obviously fucked up, um, yeah. you know, yeah, but course. it is really interesting because it can, it sh- shows how easy it can be to put on extra weight. Um, I'm curious what, what were you, were you tracking anything like in terms of how many calories you were eating? Like I'm assuming you're tracking your weight. Um, yeah, tracking my weight, I would do my weight once a week. Mm-hmm. I do a weigh-in every week. And then I did have a doctor monitor me throughout the journey once a okay. month around my blood. Um, as far as, I, I wish I would have done a better job at documenting, okay, how many calories am I eating per day? Carbs, mm-hmm. proteins, fats, all that stuff. If I had a guess, I would say around 5,000 calories a day. Okay. And it, it, like I said, that sounds like a lot. But when you eat these foods, first of all, they're they're not very nutrient dense. And so they're, they're pretty much empty calories, a lot of these mm-hmm. foods, right? So you're, you can eat them and eat them and eat them, but your body's still starving of, of is still being starved of nutrients. So we're overfed mm-hmm. and undernourished with these types of foods. So calorically speaking, you can, it adds up really quickly with the mm-hmm. amount that you're eating. Because like I said, I would have a huge bowl of cinnamon toast crunch, not the serving size. The serving size is three fourths cup. Come on. Yeah. Three fourths cup of, of cereal. So I have a huge man sized bowl for breakfast. Mm-hmm. But then two hours later, I'm starving. So two mm-hmm. hours later, I would have like a chocolate covered granola bar with the Mountain Dew. And then for lunch, I would have a few peanut butter sandwiches on, on white bread with honey or jelly or whatever. And then for a snack between lunch and dinner, it was like a bag of chips, like Doritos or Pringles and a Mountain Dew. And then for dinner, it was white pasta, marinara sauce, meatballs. Um, and then, of course, before you go to bed, you have something sweet while you're watching a movie or a TV show. And that would be cookies or dessert or ice cream or um, mm-hmm. sometimes another bowl of cinnamon toast crunch if I was really lazy. <laughs> wow. Okay. But you were tracking your blood work. Yes. I did have a doctor monitor me throughout. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting. Was the weekend linear or did you notice jumps and then it plateaued? There was jumps and it plateaued. The first week I think I gained 12 pounds. Okay. And then the next week after that was three pounds. It was almost constant throughout. There was no weeks that I lost weight. Just mm-hmm. FYI. <laughs> it was... You know, but there were some weeks where it was a big jump, but other weeks where it was just, you know, a few pounds, five pounds. It just, it, it depended. Now, the, the weight loss journey was definitely not linear. And we can talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. But 
yeah, the weight gain was pretty consistent each week. Uh, some weeks were big, other weeks were kind of small. So during the weight gain portion, how did that affect your close relationships? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, I mentioned I wrote a book of you know called Fit to Fat to Fit. It became a New York Times bestseller. If anyone is listening, gets a chance to read it, go to chapter four. All of that chapter is from my ex-wife's perspective of our relationship and how it changed. And basically, I became the female in the relationship because I was always complaining. I was always like, oh, "Do I look fat?" You know, and she just couldn't deal with my emotions. And so, I definitely took on more of the female role in that sense. Uh, and so she, it, it caused a huge issue between us because I was, you know, I wasn't choosing to be lazier. I just didn't have as much energy. And so we had two kids and um, my oldest was two and we had a newborn. And so I wasn't as helpful. I was still helping, but I wasn't as helpful as I normally am. And that kind of took a toll. And plus there's nothing sexier than confidence. So my ex-wife is awesome. We're still good friends to this day, but she didn't mind me being overweight, but she, what's unattractive is me not being confident in my body, like always complaining and, and, and wanting her to you know, turn the lights off and, and look away. And, you know, I didn't want her to see me naked mm-hmm. and I didn't want to see myself naked. Right. I was so self-conscious because my identity was based on me being Drew the fit guy. My image was, was that body image of myself. And that was my identity. And once I lost that, I kind of didn't know who I was. I freaked out. I remember wanting to go up to strangers and tell them like, Hey, not really overweight. You guys, it's just an experiment. Like go to my website. I'll, it'll explain everything. I promise. And so um, it, it did take a toll on our relationship uh, because mm-hmm. I, I was always complaining about myself. I always, was always self-conscious and, and yeah, she just was kind of done with it after the six months. So, and that's not why we, why we got divorced by the way, either. <laughs> so, yeah. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> So do you feel like you understand women more like better though in general? (laughs) (laughs) I think it taught me a lot, uh, specifically pregnant women too, Mm -hmm. because she told me like, Hey, this is what I experience when I'm overweight. Plus the mood swings and the emotions. I was like, cause here's the thing. And I'll uh, just be totally transparent. My testosterone levels dropped significantly Mm. to the low two hundreds when I was at my heaviest, which isn't good. And when when you're a man, you have low testosterone, you are more, you know, you act more like a woman. So it's kind of a more of the, the feminine version mm-hmm. of you comes out a little bit. And I could totally see that. I was definitely more emotional. And plus I hated being overweight because my identity was based on my my body looking a certain way. And it yeah. was, that's why I say it was truly humbling for me to go through that because I realized that and it took me a long time to figure this out, but I am more than my body and you are more than your body. Everyone listening, there's more to you than just what your body looks like. The problems that we've attached are self-image with our body image. And we don't know how to separate those two because society tells us you got to look a certain way to fit in or to be accepted. And if you don't, then you're kind of made fun of or shunned or treated differently. And it's unfortunate, but we, it's, it's a myth. It's a lie that we buy mm-hmm. into at some point in time, whether we're kids, whether it's our parents that says something to us or a sibling, or at some point in time, we realize, oh, my body looks this way and it's, people are saying stuff about my body, therefore I am my body, right? And it took me a while to to realize that I am more than my body. And I was 31 years old at the time. And so I'm grateful that I eventually learned that lesson though. I mean, yeah, most people don't learn that lesson. Did you notice that other people were treating you differently? Like people you didn't know? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it, more of it was in my head than mm. in reality because here's the thing, and I'll be totally honest with you. 
men, overweight men are treated differently in society than overweight women. I think women have it a lot harder than men do. And an overweight man is kind of somewhat socially accepted in society. Like no one treats them differently or is mean to them. So I can't say that anyone was mean to me. What I felt though in my head was, I remember one time I was in the grocery store and there was these three attractive women behind me checking out and I was overweight and I was really self-conscious. My shopping cart was full of soda and cookies and donuts and like all the good stuff. And I remember checking out and like these three women are waiting behind me. I'm like, oh, I just want to say something to them. Like, I really don't eat this way, ladies. Like I'm normally healthy. I usually have a six pack, but I, I, I'm doing this experiment. I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say anything though. I kind of just bit my tongue and it was interesting. Um, because that was one of uh, the defining moments in my journey where I was like, man, my clients probably have to go through this on a daily basis of feeling judged. Mm-hmm. You know, Whether or not they were judging me, I don't know. But it felt like they were looking at my stomach and looking at the food. And a lot of it probably was in my head. But um, I don't think it was in your head, though, because like if you go, especially if you go to Whole Foods, Lazy Acres or Erewhon, everyone's yeah. looking at you and looking at what's in your cart. <laughs> it's true really that's so interesting (laughs) yeah i've been to those stores and i i can i can definitely sense that i definitely have sensed that that's interesting (laughs) yeah so people i mean it's the sad truth i think also but i mean it shows up in different ways it's um grocery store and also like clothes shopping like when you're Mm. shopping for clothes i was gonna ask you about that too like what was that how did that feel for you to have to get different clothes? I'm assuming you had to get different clothes. Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, I. Uh, it was interesting because I remember when I was going on a bunch of TV shows like Dr. Oz and, and Jay Leno, they have clothing requirements. Like you mm-hmm. have to wear, you have to dress a certain way. So I'm like, all right. And what's interesting is I couldn't find any nice clothes in the sizes that I wore at that time. I was like, mm-hmm. there's nothing nice. Like there's nothing that like I would wear normally because for some reason they don't make nicer clothes and plus sizes, at least back in 2011, I didn't, it wasn't easily accessible as maybe it is now, but you know, I haven't shopped in a long time for those sizes, but that's one thing I noticed too, was like, Oh, you're, you're 44 waist. Well, we had, here's your options. You know, mm-hmm. there's just a few and it's, and it's always on the bottom. I noticed, I'm like, why is the, the biggest size on the bottom? I have to bend mm-hmm. over and, and look at those. And it's usually the selection is very, very low. I remember one time, really embarrassing. I went to New York city and I was going to go on Dr. Oz and was looking for a shirt to buy and I walked into like an express. I'm like, Hey, do you guys have a triple XL? They're like, um, yeah, we don't sell that size here. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you might want to go to like JC Penney or Macy's. And I'm like, okay, I get it. It's all good. So yeah, it was interesting. Wow. It's like, have you seen the movie mean girls? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what scene I'm, t- what I'm talking about? She's like, we don't carry that size here. <laughs> yeah. So I know. It's interesting because I think as a guy, like I didn't take it personally, but if mm-hmm. I see why people would, especially yeah. girls. It, it, man, that's so hard. It's so demoralizing and it's hard not to take it personal because yeah. it is about your weight. Like, oh yeah, that, sorry, we don't carry your size here. That's, oh, that's gotta be so hard. Yeah. And I think, I think it's also kind of a mind fuck because for people, there's that internal dialogue of... It, does this store just suck and they're not inclusive enough? Or should I really just not be this size? And people are going back and forth over that in their heads. Yep, I agree. As I have tapped more and more into my intuitive gifts, I've discovered that certain environmental factors can really affect the quality of information I receive. And one of those factors is my exposure to blue light. And I found it's really important for me to work with the natural light cycles and avoid blue light in the evenings. 
This is one of many reasons why I cannot live without my Blue Blocks blue light blocking glasses. Their Sleep Plus Red Lens is the only true 100% blue and green light blocking lens for when the sun goes down. It helps to improve sleep, reduce anxiety, and optimize your hormonal function. If you are using orange glasses to protect yourself against blue light in the evenings, then it's really not giving you the protection you need. You'll notice a huge difference when you use the Sleep Plus Red Lenses. And during the day, I use the Blue Light Clear Lens, which is a blue light filtering lens for daytime. That's best for people who work under more natural lighting. And this helps prevent against migraines, headaches, macular degeneration, and digital eye strain. I'm on my computer a lot, so this makes a huge difference. And if you struggle with seasonal depression or work under for sure artificial lighting during the day, then check out Blue Block's summer glow yellow lenses. These are blue light blocking glasses meets color therapy. My blue blocks glasses truly saved me and make a huge difference on my sleep. And especially since I moved into a new apartment, it is really bright here. And the remedy sleep mask has been saving me so I can increase my REM and deep sleep. Blue blocks has so many frames to choose from about 20. My faves are the Parker frames. And you can also send in your own frames and they offer a custom-made prescription service available. And what I love is that for every pair of blue blocks they sell, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision who gifts them to someone in need. You need to get your hands on a pair of blue blocks if you want to optimize your circadian rhythm, maximize your intuitive gifts, have more energy, get deeper sleep, avoid headaches from screen use, and reduce your anxiety. For your pair, you can head to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. Again, that's blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and use my code wellness for 15% off. Once you get a pair of blue blocks, you will never go back. So after the six months, what what were the main differences in in the blood work? Mm. So the biggest ones that I remember, because it was a long time ago, um, my blood pressure, 167 over 113 instead of 120 over 80, which is what it was throughout. All my lipids were in the red, of course. HDL was really low. LDL was way too high. Triglycerides were really high. I wish I, I could go back and look at my numbers again. I probably could go back on YouTube and like look at them. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember my testosterone, like I said, was in the low 200s. Um, and that's another thing that people don't realize is they don't see the correlation between diet, the food you eat, and how it affects your hormones, right? So they think, oh, I got low testosterone. I don't need to change my lifestyle. I just got to take testosterone replacement therapy, and that'll boost my testosterone up, And but I won't change my lifestyle. Like if we just saw, okay, if it's, it starts with food, if you just change your food, because mm-hmm. I showed people this on the way back, if you just change your food and change your lifestyle, you can fix that naturally without having to take anything. And so um, people don't see that correlation. But those are the ones that, stand out the most to be honest with you um but i wish i i had you know more like if it was just recently then i, I probably would have uh, i probably could still remember the numbers yeah well you probably also didn't realize like how big it, it was yeah. gonna get yeah i didn't uh, know <laughs> yeah so okay so and you were how what was your weight at that point before you started lo- going after losing weight so i started at 193 and i got up to 269 Okay. All right. So now walk me through the approach to the weight loss. So um, here's the thing. I, so the, the second half of the journey was six months of, of losing weight. What I wanted to do was, was show people the power of nutrition. So I skipped exercise for the first 30 days and people are like, what? Why would you do that? 
And because people think exercise is the key. Like if, if I just do P90X twice a day, I'll get ripped and shredded like they, they, they see on the transformation photos, right? Well, in reality, it doesn't really happen that way. Um, I want to show people the power of nutrition. So I went from 5,000 calories of eating the processed food to eating 2,000 calories of real food spread out over five meals. But here's the thing that happened. I went cold turkey. You know, my last meal was a whole box of mac and cheese and a two-liter bottle of Coke. I remember that. <laughs> oh and then the next day, you know, it was, you know, lean meats, vegetables, um, smoothies, things like that. The next day was so interesting because I've never felt so miserable in my life. Um, it, my body had gotten so addicted to the high that it mm -hmm. got from the food for the past six months that when I switched, it, my body was fighting back and my body wanted the high again. So it was fighting back against me like, hey, we don't, we, we don't like the way we feel. We want these foods that you've given us for the past six months. My body became addicted. And it was weird going through those withdrawal symptoms because I've never been addicted to drugs. And I can only imagine what it's like. But I assume it's something similar to where you're kind of out of control. Like your body is telling you what to do, what it wants. And you know you're not supposed to do it. But it's so weird. I'm eating this healthy food. I'm supposed to feel better. But I felt miserable. I felt horrible. And mm -hmm. I've never experienced that before. But that's where it clicked for me. I was like, this is what my clients have been telling me. When I would give them a meal plan and be like, all right, here you go. Be perfect. Don't, don't screw up. And they would go a little bit, a week or two. And then they would be like, oh man, you know, I just, I was out with some friends and I had a drink or two. And then I started eating the fries and the pizza. And before you know it, I just kind of fell off the wagon. And I'm like, why did you do that? Why do you, why don't you just put down the junk food? It's not that hard until I experienced what it's like to a small degree. And I realized just how powerful the emotional connection to food really is because mm -hmm. I hadn't experienced that before and going through it really opened up my eyes to just how wrong I was. Uh, and it helped me uh, develop the empathy for those that struggle with food addiction. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's just, you just lack willpower. Just have more willpower, be more disciplined. Like what, why don't you do that? Until I realized it's not as simple as just cutting out those foods. Like you wouldn't go up to a drug addict and be like, what's wrong with you? Just stop doing drugs. It's not that hard. Like just don't do it. Why do you do it? It's like, you don't understand unless you've been in their shoes and you, you understand how powerful that addiction is. Mm -hmm. And for me, I only lived this way for six months. Imagine someone that's been eating this way for years or decades, mm -hmm. how hard it would be just to be like, all right, cold turkey, start eating healthy again. And it's going to be great day one. Like, no, I would say for two weeks, I went through the hell. Mm -hmm. And then eventually your body adjusts, like your body goes through like the foods out of the system and your body can reset. And, and then it feels a little bit more normal after that point. Um, I would say that those two weeks were, were hell though, were really hard for me. And then from there it got easier. The cravings got a little bit easier to manage. Uh, but I still didn't exercise yet. So I just switched up my diet and I lost 19 pounds that first month. All my lipids went back to green. They're, they're in the normal levels after 30 days and my testosterone more than doubled. So I went from mm -hmm. low 200s to mid 400s in just 30 days of just changing my diet. Wow. So what were your macros like? So um, that's the other thing is I didn't really track my macros, but if I had to guess, it was more of a paleo-ish approach. It was um, definitely high protein, um, moderate amount of fat and low carb-ish. So it wasn't keto by any okay. means, um, but it was definitely more of a low carb approach. It was mostly meat and veggies, uh, mm -hmm. lean meats and veggies. And then, like I said, maybe a, a little bit of fat, but I kept my fat kind of low. And then I started incorporating carbs as a pre-workout back mm -hmm. then. So like I said, around 2000 calories. So I, I would guess that probably 40% protein, 30% and 30%. So 30% fat, 30% carbs. Okay. Gotcha. So in those first two weeks, did you fall off the wagon at all or did you push through? 
I pushed through, but there was moments where I wanted to. And the reason I didn't was because, so I went on all these TV shows, right? At my heaviest. And I said, okay, let's do this together. Let's lose weight together. Here's exactly what I'm eating every day. Here's my meal plans. Here's my workouts. I put all of that online. So it was available Mm -hmm. to everyone. And I knew that there was people doing this journey with me. And if they were willing to do it with me, if they could do it, I, I, I had to do it too. So yes, I did do it cold turkey, but I had this accountability factor mm-hmm. that where it's like, okay, I can't let these people down because they're counting on me. So when I would go to the grocery store, walk past the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, which was my drug. And I was like, I can't have that. I, I can do this because I was so afraid of like, what if it's in my cart? Mm-hmm. And someone's following me and they're like, hey, aren't you the fifth fit guy? What, what are you doing with Cinnamon Toast Crunch? I'd be like, uh, uh nothing, <laughs> you know, and like just run away. So, <laughs> you know, I didn't, uh, I, luckily I didn't give in, but because uh, there was other people doing it with me, that's what mm-hmm. helped me push through. Yeah. Well, so because I think a lot of people are, you know, wondering what tips you have for people who feel like they can't push through. And it's like, I mean, accountability is a big piece. I think having, feeling like the whole world watching you probably helps, right? Um, yeah, for sure. What else would you say for people like how how to stay mentally strong through that? Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. You don't need to do what I did, right? Um, you know, go on TV shows and start a website and all that stuff. But having a small group of, of someone to keep you accountable, so whether that's friends, whether it's family, whether it's an online Facebook group, like recently I just started a, a free 31-day challenge for the month of July that people can join. And what I decided to do was, hey, let's create a private Facebook group where we're going to be doing the same stuff together. And there's power in numbers. So just random strangers joining a Facebook group from all over the world, doing the same things for 31 days straight. It's like, there's power in that because people feed off of each other's energy in -hmm. the group and they, it's a safe place to post questions or also talk about the failures that you've had or struggles you're having or successes. And there's power in accountability to someone, whether it's your best friend or whether it's your family or whether it's an online community, go find support. Or, you know, create an Instagram account and start posting about your journey, your progress. And it's scary, but you got to find a way to stay accountable to someone. Because if you don't have some type of accountability coach, whether it's a trainer or a therapist or someone you can check in with, it's so easy just to be like, mm, no one's watching, you know, like, oh, I'm really stressed out today. I had a really bad day. Oh, there's wine and chocolate over there. Okay. You know, it's just right there. No one's going to know. I'll start tomorrow. That happens mm-hmm. all the time. But if you're like, okay, me and my... My, my friends are doing this together and, um, you know, I can't let them down because they're going to check in on me. I'm not going to do it because I got, you know, everyone's doing it with me. So it's kind of more motivating for people. Yeah, definitely. So when you added exercise back in, what, what type of exercise were you doing? What was your approach with that? So once I started exercising, um, you know, I was a personal trainer. So I kind of came up with my own programming. I started very slow. Um, the first 30 days, um, I didn't exercise, but what I decided to do was do some stretching every day and mm-hmm. just getting my muscles ready to eventually lift after the 30 days. So I would stretch every day for 30 days straight. And then I started with a very low intensity cardio two days a week. And then the other three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, were lifting days where it was mostly bodyweight exercises that were supersets. So I would do supersets of one day was chest and back. And so I, I got my cardio in by doing supersets with minimal breaks. So I would do a set of pushups on my knees and then I would do assisted pull-ups as a superset, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, push pull system. And then Wednesday was legs and shoulders. So I would do a set of squats, you know, really lightweight in the beginning, mostly just body weight stuff. 
And then from there, maybe some light dumbbells for some side raises. And then Friday was buys, tries. And that's kind of how I set it up throughout the rest of the five months was five days a week, you know, 40, 45 minutes per workout. Mm-hmm. And that's all. That's all I did. People think, oh, you're going to work out twice a day and you're going to work out for hours. I'm like, I don't have time for that, first of all. But, <laughs> you know, this is definitely a sustainable lifestyle change. It doesn't have to be hardcore where you're going to the gym for three hours a day and you don't have to be starving yourself every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about like plateaus you hit and what happened there. Yeah. So that was interesting because <laughs> it's good to be humbled in life because it gives you a new perspective. I remember there was times before this where my clients would say, Drew, you know, I'm doing everything you're telling me to. I'm just not losing weight. Like, like I'm like, well, let's, let's see if you're doing everything. Like, you know, I would check in with them. Like maybe they're lying about this. Like, are you sure you're eating this many calories? Or are you sure you're not sneaking in anymore? Like as if assuming that they had, you know, they were cheating or lying a little bit. And then here I was, there was a couple of weeks where one week I didn't lose any weight, which I freaked out. And one week I gained weight, which obviously I freaked out too. Cause <laughs> I was like, I have to hit a certain number each week. Otherwise I'm not going to get back to fit. And um, it was interesting because here I am a trainer doing everything that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yet I, there was weeks where I'm like, okay, I don't know why I gained weight this week. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I tracked everything. Okay. I did my workouts. And the problem that we have is we're so fixated on the scale thinking that's the end all be all as far as our measurement of success. When in reality, it's the stupidest form of measurement in my opinion. There's a lot more effective ways to measure progress than just your relationship with gravity. Stepping on a scale and like your relationship with gravity at that point in time is this. And that number holds so much value because we give it value. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have value. We just give it value and we can also take it away if we want to. So we, we get to choose whether or not we give that number such big value. But yeah, there was weeks because I got a bunch of haters like, oh, see, you're not losing weight. You don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter. But at the time, like it was, it was interesting. I had to deal with that a few weeks. Did you change anything or just keep going? I kept going. I didn't Mm -hmm. change a whole lot, you know, maybe up the intensity a little bit or maybe reevaluated what I was doing with my diet. I did switch up my diet some months where I added in more grains, uh, you know, like maybe a slice of whole wheat bread per day and like a half a banana per day, a um, little bit of fruit here and there. Let's see what else did I switch up. Obviously, my workouts, every two to four weeks, I would switch up my workout. So I wasn't doing the same thing. Um, I think every two to four weeks is ideal to switch up your workouts because what happens is your body adjusts and adapts to those workouts and it becomes very efficient at those workouts. So if you're doing the same workouts, your body burns less calories to do the same amount of work that were in the beginning. It had to burn a lot of calories to do that same amount of work. And so that's how amazing our bodies are. So it's like, all right, well, I have to get out of my comfort zone to force my body to adapt and adjust to a new environment so that um, we can create change. And so mm-hmm. I definitely did that throughout the, the exercise process. And then as far as my, my nutrition you know, protocol, it was more, like I said, more of a paleo-ish approach. Keto wasn't really around back then. It wasn't mainstream, so I didn't know enough about it to actually do it. And that was kind of the way I ate weight. Uh, the way I ate anyways was five, six meals a day through spread throughout the day and bring my Tupperware containers, my protein and veggies. And yeah, I don't do that anymore though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So where were you at after six months? So I did get back down to 193, about eight and a half percent body fat. So I did get my body back, which was really amazing, but I was a whole new man on the inside, totally mm-hmm. different perspective. And so, yeah, I, I did make it back to fit, uh, fortunately for myself. 
Mm-hmm. But it was really cool to see how many people were inspired by this. Like I got so many transformation pictures and stories of people saying, thank you for doing what you did. Like it transformed my life. And, you know, the reason I, I started this journey was to one, gain a better perspective, but also I wanted to inspire people uh, in a different way. We've all seen the biggest loser model. We've all seen people go from morbidly obese to skinny and fit. We've seen that happen again and again and again. And it will always be inspiring. But I think we've become so used to it. Like we're like, um, predictable. I know what's going to happen. They're going to lose weight. They're going to look amazing. This was the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. What I was doing was like a, 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 a train wreck that you couldn't look away from, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people, people really loved it in the end, inspired them in a different way. How does it feel for you to look back and like, see those interviews you had? Like when you, I mean, does it feel like you or how does it feel for you to see that? It's, it's, it's me. It's the old version mm-hmm. of me. I was such a different person, you know, nine years ago. Uh, just, I didn't have as much life experience. You know, I've gone through a divorce. I've uh, transitioned out of my, my religion I grew up in. That's a, those are two major, uh, you know, poles in your identity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, marriage and for 10 years and your religion that you grew up with, that your whole family is a part of, and you decide to leave like that kind of hit rock bottom moment. So I've had so many more experiences that have taught me uh, about who I really am and um, grateful for that. But it just, I, I'm a totally different person nowadays uh, with new perspective on life. And, um, uh, you know, I think experiences shape our beliefs and I've had so many powerful experiences since that first time I did it that, yeah, I'm a different person. So yeah, I look back and I'm like, that's like the little kid version of me. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure if you've ever done that before. You're like, yeah, that you know, that's me, but it's an older version of me. Yeah. I, I get it. I uh, had a ton of like media attention when I went through some pretty serious health issues like five years ago. Um, And kind of the opposite thing happened to me. Like I stopped digesting food uh, Mm -hmm. and I was like down to 70 pounds and it was a nightmare. And so then I see things like that now and I'm like, holy shit, (laughs) Um, different life. But looking back on your experiment, would you have changed anything? Probably like, here's the thing. Like when I first did this, I didn't really know what I was doing. I'm not like a marketing genius. I'm not, uh, <laughs> I didn't have any media connections when I did mm-hmm. this first journey. And so, um, yeah, I, I would have documented so much more, you know, I mm-hmm. probably would have looked into seeing if someone was interested in making this into a documentary. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. Um, I just could have tracked so much more stuff, but as far as like the way I did it, there's small things I would change, but, um, other than that, no, I think it worked out the way it was supposed to. And it mm-hmm. definitely taught me the lessons I needed to learn. And mm-hmm. it caught people's attention and motivated a lot of people in a positive way. So, yeah, I just keep thinking, God, I wish you had worn a CGM. Yeah. Like, I would kill. Oh, that's a great idea, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and plus, I, I probably would have done keto mm-hmm. uh, and intermittent fasting. Yeah. Around. I didn't know anything about it back then. So yeah, I definitely would have implemented a lot of the things like tools that I use now. Yeah. Like I probably would have meditated, which I do now. I didn't meditate back then, uh, you know, to help, you know, center me and like, okay, Mm -hmm. not freak out so much. And plus, you know, now I'm not as attached to my body as I used to be. Yeah. I still like to look good. I still exercise and take care of my body. But back then I was obsessed, Mm -hmm. you know, and I probably had a little bit of body dysmorphia where I was so attached to my body image that if I wasn't super fit, I would feel down about myself. I would feel a little bit self-conscious and, uh, you know, not feel uh, like the best version of myself when I'm like a little bit higher in fat versus now, like 
being having two daughters, like my perceptions totally shifted on body image and how important it is for me as the role model to them to not pass that on to them. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So yeah. finding that balance of like, yes, it's important to eat healthy food. Yes, it's important to exercise. Um, but I don't want it to become so strict about that for them that that's all they think about and that's all they worry about, about their body and looking a certain way and being healthy all the time. Like, so I'm definitely a lot more relaxed than what I used to be. And I feel like I'm just so sensitive to that fact of mm-hmm. raising two little girls. And I know what this world will do to women in general if they just get sucked in and they don't have mm-hmm. someone like me to kind of pull them back out and kind of explain things to them a little bit better versus, hey, this is the way society is and society is going to treat you a certain way if you look a certain way. Yeah. Well, and especially with the fitness industry, and I feel like so much is fake now, like on social media, like, um, which is why it's so good. People can like see your, your story and like what really, what really goes on. What, what brought you to keto? Yeah. So I kind of stumbled upon that listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast with this doctor named Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, and he's really well known in the keto space. But when I heard him talk to Dr. Uh, sorry to Tim Ferriss about the the keto diet, I had no idea there was all the scientific research being done on keto and epilepsy and keto and brain toxicity and keto and cancer and uh, keto and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. I'm like, I thought this was just a diet, like a weight loss diet. What is this? Mm-hmm. All this other research that he's doing, I had no idea that that existed. And so it really intrigued me. I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And so I did my own experiment. And have you seen the movie? Limitless with Bradley Cooper. He no. takes this clear pill. It's probably before your time. You look really young. I don't know how old you are. <laughs> I'm 25. Okay. Well, there's this awesome movie called Limitless with Bradley Cooper, and he takes this clear pill, and he, you know, he can, you can tap into your brain, right? And like he learns languages in minutes and, you know, writes algorithms and all of these amazing things. It's kind of a Hollywood movie, but I felt my brain felt so sharp and so clear for the first time. It was like night and day mm-hmm. compared to before. I'm like, my brain feels so sharp. It feels so amazing mm-hmm. because I can talk faster. I can remember facts, um, those kinds of things. And then also I wasn't hungry all the time. You know, mm-hmm. my old training method was eat when you get up and you eat pretty much all day long, right? Two hour breaks in between each meal. And I would just eat constantly. And now I could eat once or twice a day, be totally satisfied, have that mental clarity. My mm-hmm. digestion was better because I was giving my digestive system a break. And my performance was just as good in the gym, if not better than before. And I was like, man, this is way more sustainable as I'm getting older. I don't have to pack six meals a day and bring my Tupperware container and set my timer for every two or three hours. Like that's not for me. I don't want to be a slave to food. I want to be able to go all day long without any food if I have to, but still not feel that hangry feeling and not feel like I'm going to die, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you tried carnivore? Um, I have done a two-week experiment. I've talked to a couple doctors on my podcast, Dr. Paul Saladino. Um, I did a two-week experiment with it and actually loved it. I felt really good on carnivore, to be totally mm-hmm. honest with you. But it's like, like people think keto is strict. Carnivore is really strict. Like <laughs> Meat only, right? Like I, um, I just wanted vegetables and avocado. And I just, you know, I don't want to be that person that's only eating meat all day mm-hmm. long and like, no, sorry. I, I do like little experiments. I do 30, 60, 90 day experiments every now and then. Um, so there's a chance I might revisit that and in the future mm-hmm. to do a little bit more lab work before and after to see if it's ideal. But just going off based off, off of how I feel, I really did feel amazing on it, to be honest with you. And I did it for two weeks. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I do all kinds of experiments on yeah. my body. Like 
potato diet, carnivore diet. I did carnivore a couple times and most recently for about six months. Um, and I ended up stopping like it, I felt so amazing for a long time at the beginning. And then I stopped because it was just fucking with my blood sugar so badly. Like everybody else has like on social media, it was like super flatline. I mean, I was like up in the two hundreds and then crashing down to 40, like all day long. Um, And, and I also, I couldn't get full. I was, I, no matter how much I ate and I'm like, wow. I can't, I can't pay for like five pounds of grass fed <laughs> meat every day. Like I just exactly. can't. Um, so that was super interesting, but yeah, there's a lot of cool, cool things we can track now, like with the CGMs, all that. Yeah. I would love to have a CKM. Maybe if that, if that doesn't even exist. So like, like, like to be able to monitor your glucose and your ketones in live mm-hmm. time, that'd be awesome. But here's the mm-hmm. thing that I've kind of, you know, yes, I'm a big keto fan, but I think everything is a tool in your tool belt. And yeah. I don't think there's one right way to eat forever for for everyone because I feel like metabolic flexibility is the ultimate key for as humans, mm-hmm. right? Like we weren't just meant to run off of ketones or just glucose. Like it's amazing to be able to run off of both sources of fuel efficiently. And what works for you today might not work for you six months from now or a year from now. So it's mm-hmm. important to be flexible as your body adjusts and changes throughout time. People get so fixated. They almost be like become like uh, attached to it as a religion. And they're like, no, this is my religion. I can't leave it because it worked mm-hmm. for me for so long. And I've seen both sides of the coin from carnivore to vegan to keto. And it's important to stay flexible and adjust and adapt and upgrade and tweak. Like the way I do keto now is totally different than the way I did keto when I first started. And yeah, it was a little bit more, um, dogmatic about it, like oh, carbs are bad. Carbs are bad. I can't eat carbs. Like, come on, you, you know, you can't have blueberries or you can't have some raspberries. Yeah. Like, you know, for me, I've just I've I've learned to find that that balance based off of what I'm doing. Like, so for example, I recently ran a hundred mile run in 24 hours just a couple weeks ago, and for that, I totally had to sh- shift my approach to keto to help fuel me for this race. And you know, uh, if you see me on race day, you saw what I ate. There was tarts involved there was um watermelon there was gummy bears there was anything i could get in my body to help fuel me for those 24 hours i burned fourteen thousand calories i probably only consumed maybe a thousand to two thousand like i didn't eat a lot but i had to have those quick um mm-hmm. you know bits of food to help fuel me and sometimes it was you know, keto ish other times it was just straight carbs mm-hmm. and um you gotta do what works best for you for there's people out there that i know a guy here in utah that ran 100 miles with no food. He was totally fat adapted. He just drank water and, and took salt and he did it with no food. And yeah. I'm like, wow. Okay. So that's what I'm saying is like, we see hear that and we're like, Oh, maybe that'll work for me or maybe this will work for me. And it's good to experiment, but it's good to also be flexible with your experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many other variables too, like depending on what else is going on underlying, like what other stresses your body is under. Um, yeah. what, what inspired your hundred mile run? So have you heard of David Goggins before? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's this ex-Navy SEAL who wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. It's a really good book about mindset and, and challenging your self-limiting beliefs. And mm-hmm. so after reading his book, me and my brother were, were um, feeling motivated. And my brother came up with the idea to do a 100-mile run. And we attempted it last year, but we didn't train long enough. We trained for a month and a half. And I, I, I completed 80 miles in 24 hours. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. But this year, I was like, you know what? I want to seriously train for it and, and give myself more time. Maybe I could pull this off. And so it, I took a good seven months of training this year to actually do it. 
And I, I wanted to just say that I could do it, right? I'm not a runner. I'm not naturally gifted when it comes to running. Like I'm not built for running at all. But I, I figured with the right training, the right mindset, um, I could pull this off. And I did. I ran 100 miles in less than 24 hours. I, I accomplished my goal. And now I'm done with running for a while. But <laughs> <laughs> you know? Holy shit. But that's what the was- thing. It's, it, it's like you, a couple of years ago, I would have thought that was impossible. And most yeah. people think like a hundred miles, that's impossible. But for some people, impossible might be a, a half marathon. Mm-hmm. And guess what? I bet you, if you train for it, you, most people could do it. And then who, what else can you achieve? You know? Mm-hmm. So sorry, I interrupted oh my you. God. No, no, it's just, it's amazing. What was your training like? Uh, that was the hard part is like, it took so much of my life away yeah. from my family and stuff like you know, uh, so what I would do is two long runs per week, usually Saturday and Sunday back to back. So I would usually do maybe 10 miles on Saturday and 12 miles on Sunday. And then throughout the week with speed training, hill training, uh, maybe two days of lifting, you know, heavy lifting just to kind of maintain my muscle mass a little bit. I still lost a lot. But yeah, those back to back long training days were hard because 10 to 12 miles didn't take me that long. But there was days where I had to do three hour runs, four hour runs uh, just to build up to that. That, you know, being on your feet for 24 hours. Yeah. That's a lot of your life. So <laughs> what, what mindset shifts did you get to make to do that? That's a good question. I think it was being training my mind to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. for me, like running for two or three hours is probably the most boring thing in the world, but I trained my mind to just get comfortable with being in this uncomfortable state of running. You know, I wasn't doing a super fast pace. That's the thing is like, people, I'm not running seven minute miles. Um, but just being on my feet and being able to continue to move and having your mind go somewhere else where instead of you're focusing on the, on the pain, maybe you're, you're focusing on life. Maybe you're focusing on problems at home. Maybe you're listening to a book or a podcast. And for me, it was a really good mindset shift to just learn how to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. I think it's the problem that most humans have is we don't like becoming uncomfortable. Like jumping in a cold shower, that sucks. That's not comfortable. Fasting for 24 hours, 48 hours, that sucks. Why would I do that? Like, that's not comfortable. And we, we, we live this life of comfort because of the way society is. We have air conditioning, we have heaters, we have blankets, we have soft beds, we have soft pillows and, you know, nice carpet at home. Like, we live these co- lives of comfort. And so to go out of your way and make yourself uncomfortable is really hard for us to do because the world is set up, you know, to be as comfortable as possible for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hardest challenge for just humans in general is especially in the, in the first world countries like the USA, like we just don't like to get out of our comfort zone, but you go, you go to a third world country, you know, you see poverty, you see real uh, people uh, with nothing mm-hmm. and you, you, you'll complain a lot less about not being comfortable. You know, like that cold shower is not as hard when you go to like a third world country, you know, I've lived in Brazil before. And um, once you see it, you experience it, it shifts your perception. Like, okay, I have all these blessings here in America. I definitely should take, yeah, I definitely don't want to take these things for granted and yeah. I be, you know, grateful for all of it. So yeah. it's all about perspective. Oh, totally. I mean, I think a lot of people have had some wake up moments, especially in the last few months. Like yeah. <laughs> if you can't stay inside with your partner, got to think about it. Uh, <laughs> but what were you thinking about slash listening to on your hundred mile run? Yeah. So normally I've, I've got some kind of podcast or audiobook or music, like, and usually I just cycle through those three things, but it was really cool because a lot of friends uh, came out to support me. And so they were running alongside with me throughout the <laughs> race. So 
um, I thought I would be annoyed with it, with someone being there with me all the time. Mm -hmm. But it was actually really helpful because it took my mind off of, you know, what I'm going through and kind of helped me. Like they would ask me questions and I would answer them or, you know, I was able to talk to them throughout the, the whole day and the whole night. And so there was maybe only maybe 10 to 20 miles of it that I ran by myself solo. And I just, I think during those moments, I just went silence. Mm-hmm. Kind of like took all the experience in, especially at nighttime when it was pitch black. There was a couple laps where I just did by myself and I just kind of took this experience in like, this hurts, but man, it's such a beautiful experience to be alive and to be able to have a healthy body to be able to do this. Like I mm-hmm. kind of focused on that. I remember during those, those midnight hours. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And I, I kind of want to like segue that into you're talking about how now you meditate more and how you had left the religion you grew up with. And I would love to hear more about how like your spirituality has, has changed, um, you know, through all these experiences. Yeah. That's the thing is like, unless you've experienced this, you really don't understand what I'm about to talk about because you know, for me, the way I grew up, it was like my religion is the true one religion of all the religions. And like, we know the truth. And like, this is what's going to happen after we die. And this is where we were before we were born. And like, so you literally feel like you know everything. Like, your whole truth is based on the system that has been presented in front of you since you were a little kid. And like, that's what your parents believe. So that's what you believe. And then to find out at some point that it might not be true is really hard because that's like a big part of your identity. And then you start to question, well, well, if this isn't true, what else is true? Like, what is true? Like, like are other religions, right? Is there one right religion or religion in general? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you start to question everything and you're unsure of so many things. But what's cool about that for me, at least was I was able to start over from a clean slate. Like, okay, I've been told what to think and what to believe my entire life. I'm going to go experience what, uh, to, to find out for myself what feels right in my heart, in my heart of hearts, what feels true to me. And so that's where I was open to things like meditation and learning about other religions. And I was like, okay, meditation, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. It sounds kind of weird, but I'm going to give it a try. And now it's really interesting because now I get to pick and choose what feels right to me. So that's why I don't really associate myself uh, with any one specific religion but if I hear good things about a certain way of, of thinking or believing, I'm like, you know what? That sounds true to me. You mm-hmm. know, that aspect of it. like, for example, when I read, when I read Brene Brown's books, her words speak truth to me, even though it's not a religion that she's preaching. It's just her words speak so much truth to me. And so many other books I've read, like Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy, Obstacles the Way. And, and now I get to pick and choose what feels good to me rather mm-hmm. than being told what to believe. So now I, a lot of people that I'm friends with that have left my same religion, a lot of them stay in this bitter, angry place. Like they've been lied to, they're upset. It's kind of like when you find out Santa Claus isn't real, right? Like some people are really mad and like, hold on to that. Like my parents lied to me my whole life. And, you know, I thought this was true. And now you're telling me it's not true. And some people hold on to that for a long period of time. Other people are like, oh, okay, cool. And so like for me, I feel like I finally found my peace, my place mm-hmm. of peace outside of the religion I grew up in. And now I can look at all religions and respect all of them because I feel like every belief system has a purpose for certain people for a certain period of time in their life. And for some people, it might be their whole life. For some people, it might be a few years where like, I converted to this religion and it changed my life completely and it made me who I am today. But maybe they've outgrown that and now, they've, now they're, they're looking for something else that, that they need. And I feel like 
you know, whoever's in charge, God, the universe, I feel like there's certain things put in our past to help us grow, whether mm-hmm. it's religion or whether it's a way of thinking or these other spiritual concepts that are out there. I feel like those things eventually come up and, and maybe we, we need them for a period of time to grow and become who we're supposed to become. And then, okay, done with that. Now what's next? Maybe there's something else I need to learn, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I view life and my spirituality. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I always say it's like just this big scavenger hunt. You know, you yeah. like follow the clues, you spend some time there and then you go to the next and you piece things together for yourself. And it's more about that journey. Um, how How did it, affect your relationship with your family when you, when you left that religion? It's a really good question. Um, they, so all my family's still in it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for them it was hard because, you know, I used to be like them. So I know kind of how they were feeling probably when I left. It's kind of sad, you know, you're like, oh, I, you know, you're not going to be with us and, you know, um, we want you to be a part of us. And so I think there's a sadness aspect in the beginning, but I think once they realize that I'm actually really happy where I am, like I'm mm-hmm. not lost and like wandering this, this earth, like with no purpose and just like depressed and sad, like they think it's going to be, it's like they, 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 they see me and they know I'm happy. They know, mm-hmm. you know, they hear me talk my truth to them and, um, they know that I'm not lost. And I think for them, that makes them happy. At least, you know, my, my mom has said that to me before. And, mm-hmm. and that's all I can do before. In the beginning, I wanted to show them that I was happy, <laughs> but, um, I, uh, I think I was probably trying too hard in the beginning, uh, just so that they, uh, to kind of prove them wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, that was kind of egotistical of me, but now I'm definitely at peace with where I'm at. And luckily, you know, I can still, respect their beliefs I'll, like I'll go to church with them when we get together and, mm-hmm. and it's fine for me it's not like I can't go in that church like I, I can't handle it it's just um I can respect it you know yeah. what it is was your ex-wife on a similar like path in terms of leaving or is she still because she was also in the same religion right yeah good question she we both kind of left around the same time actually right before mm-hmm. our divorce a lot of people don't know that um yeah, we both kind of left around the same time. We had some experiences that kind of shook our faith a little bit and caused us to do some more research and, and look into it a little bit more. And we learned some things about the history of the church that we grew up in that weren't told to us. Mm-hmm. And we, this picture was painted for us a certain way of like, this is how it is. This is how this is the past. This is how the church was formed. And then in the days of, you know, now you can Google anything and fact check stuff like mm-hmm actually that didn't happen the way we said it did. This is how it really happened. And it's like, Oh, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? And it's like, well, you know, there's, and then there's these other things too. Like well, that didn't happen exactly that way. Here's how it really happened. And we're like, okay, there's all these things being covered up. It just seemed really suspicious. And it finally got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I think what I've, I've come to realize is that every religion is started by men who feel like they speak for God. They feel some type of powerful connection or there's some type of powerful experience they've had. And they feel like God is speaking through me to do what, you know, this work to start this church. And, and every religious leader is, is led by uh, these men who feel like God speaks to them and they're just doing the best they can. They're men with experiences that grew up in a certain culture, a certain way of, of thinking and believing. And, they kind of pass their interpretation of what they feel comes from God onto the followers of the church. And maybe sometimes like it feels from God and maybe sometimes like 
that was a mistake. Like, I don't feel like that we should have done that. Like, but you mm-hmm. did that. And, and so I feel like they're just men doing the best they can as the spokespeople for God. And like I said, now I get to kind of pick and choose, like, you know what, that feels good to me. I feel that feels right. Or no, I disagree with it. Like, that's wrong. Like, I don't mm-hmm. feel good about that. It's a liberating feeling. I felt the same way. I mean, I grew up in such a, like a strict Catholic environment and then I just felt suffocated. And then when I like released, released it and then just saw everything as like a clean slate and let me pick and choose what sits with me. It was so liberating. Yeah. Um, for what about with your, your kids? How have they been raised spiritually? Yeah, that's a good question. So obviously we don't take them to church, but mm-hmm. um, we tell them that, you know, if they want to go to church, they can, but they're kids and they don't want to go to church. They they don't like to sit there for two hours. Um, but, you know, we we try and have strong spiritual discussions about what our beliefs are. And it's mm-hmm. really hard because a lot of the answers are, I don't know, like we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen after this life. We don't mm-hmm. know what happened before this life. We don't know if we're going to come back again. Um, and so a lot of the answers, and I think that's hard because as a parent, you want to have the answers for your kids, you know, like with Santa Claus, for example, your kids ask you so many questions. What about this? Oh, well, he does that. Or like, and you give them the answers that make them feel good. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But do you like, do we really know that's how it happens? I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen after this life. People think mm-hmm. they know, but, um, so yeah, we just kind of leave it up to their own imagination, but also we tell them like, Hey, go off of what feels good to you. What do you feel? Like, what do you think? And we ask them questions as well. Like, what do you think about this? What do you think will happen after we die? And you know, it's interesting to see, to hear their answers. Mm-hmm. Do you think that your experiment would have gone differently if you had been at this place with your like spirituality? That's a good question. It might have, it definitely might have because I feel like I'm such a different person now versus then that uh, I probably would have been more open to things. Like, for example, I didn't drink any alcohol during my journey, which uh, probably would have made it a little bit more entertaining, possibly, who knows. (laughs) Uh, But also, you know, I didn't really talk a lot about my philosophies or my theories on life or my spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I still don't talk a lot about that, but I just feel like I'm so much more in tune with with who I am. And I'm so much, I have so much more Mm self-awareness that, I speak, when I talk about health and fitness, I'm not always talking about macros and calories and workouts and like that aspect of it. Because for me, um, there's a strong correlation between our mental, emotional, and spiritual health mm-hmm. with our physical health. And a lot of times we separate those things. And so mm-hmm. for me, just with experiences that I've had since then, I talk a lot about how our emotional and spiritual health can lead into our physical health. And there's a strong correlation there instead of separating those two things. So when I talk about meditation, I don't talk about it from a religious perspective, like you have to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I say, you know, hey, meditation is a great thing. It's not going to get you six pack abs. It's not going to get you ripped and shredded and make you skinny. But if you practice meditation, what it does is it makes you more aware and when you're more aware, you're more mindfully eating of what you're putting in your body. You're more aware of like, okay, Am I just mindlessly eating food that I, I, I'm just eating because I'm bored? Mm-hmm. Or are you more aware of like, okay, what's this food going to do for me? Like, like what, what's my intention behind wanting to eat this food, right? And building that self-awareness. So meditation can help build that self-awareness, which can lead to more mindful eating, which can lead to some weight loss for sure. Also, the mind-muscle connection when working out is super important. And I feel like meditation can help strengthen the mind-muscle connection as you're working out instead of focusing on what you're going to do after the workout or what you have to do that night or what happened last night, you're able to connect to um, your muscles as you're working out and be more present 
um, you know, as you do your workout, which can be lead to more, uh, which can lead to a more effective workout mm-hmm. and give you better results. So, yeah, I talk a lot about that now and um, probably because that's my truth and based off of my experiences. Yeah. Well, I mean, it takes certain experiences to understand that. And I think the more people I talk to, like interviewing so many experts and like my own experiences, it's just like the clearer it becomes that the energy behind your action is, is so much more important than what the action actually is. Um, (laughs) you know, like what, no matter what the goal is. And I think so many people, especially right now, like in a society of quick fixes, like how do I get from A to Z? How do I lose weight the fastest? How do I heal from this health issue? And like so many people just need to, in my opinion, slow down and like focus on what the energy is behind behind the action. Because, you know, if you try and go after your body, like in a hateful, I hate my body, I want to change it, fix it. It's You can get a very different result doing the same actions. than if you're coming after it, like, I want you to feel better. I want you to feel your best. I love you. Like, it's just a totally different result. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I feel like if anything, there's the biggest lesson I learned going through my divorce and hitting rock bottom was operating out of a place of self-love versus self-hate. I've done the self-hate thing my entire life. And yeah, it, it led to discipline as far as being able to to stay strict at my workouts and, and eating healthy to get my body to look a certain way. But it was never fulfilled. I was never truly happy. I was that guy with, you know, 8% body fat, but still like like critical, super critical of my body and just beating myself up. And and when you operate out of a place of self-hate versus self-love, you're more judgmental. You're, you, you manifest and project that hate onto other people. And mm-hmm. that's what people don't realize is everything is a mirror. Everything is a, a mirror of how we see ourselves. So if you hate who you are and you judge who you are, guess what? You're going to go out there and be judgmental and, and hate people you don't even know. You don't even know their story, but you'll put them in a box and judge them based off of their looks, based off of um, you know, what they say, based off their social media posts, based off of their profile picture. You, you make these judgments. And when you are operating at a place of self-hate, you tend to do that. But if you're coming from a place of self-love, Yes, like you said, your intention is so important when it comes to, okay, why do you want to do this? And you're just more self-aware of that. And you're like, I don't want to hurt other people. I don't even know that person. I love who I am. And I'm not going to judge that person because I don't know their story. And that's the difference of operating at a place of self-love versus self-hate. You're more fulfilled, even though your life might not be perfect. Maybe you don't have the body you want just yet, but you still are happy and fulfilled where you're at because you're grateful for what you have now. Um, it doesn't mean you're not trying to become better and work on on better um, becoming better, but what it does is it helps you be more fulfilled now rather than saying one day when my body looks like this or one day when I have this money or this car or this house, then I'll be happy, right? And mm-hmm. then people will love me. Then you're always chasing after these outside sources of happiness in life, and before you know it, you turn around and your life's wasted away, like uh, hating yourself and being at mm-hmm. war with yourself and never being truly happy. Yeah. So my last question for you is what's one thing people can do today to start moving more toward self-love? Uh, I would say be open to new things. Be open to uh, things that are outside your comfort zone. And I think that's where the most growth is going to happen because you know, if you just try to repeat the same things you've tried before that are in your comfort zone, and I feel like they get you so far, but after that, it's like, all right, that worked for me for a little bit, but then what? So be open to new things for me that had to do with hiring a life coach, which, you know, I grew up thinking, oh, life coaches, therapists, those are for people that have problems, you know, and I don't have any problems, <laughs> but obviously we all do. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm humbled enough to go try a life coach or, you know what? I've heard about this book from so many people. I'm going to read Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Like 
like it's out of my comfort zone. I'm not really a, a bookworm, but I'm going to do it. And I, I did it. And like, all right, what about meditation? Maybe I'll try that. You know, I've never tried it before. Why not? And then gratitude journal. What's that? How do I do that? Maybe that's something I need to look into. Or maybe it's waking up earlier. Or maybe it's taking a cold shower or making your bed every day. Or maybe it's trying a new diet. Um, there's so many things out there that are outside your comfort zone. Try something new. And I feel like when we try something new, we grow in a certain way and we see ourselves through a new lens. Like, hey, you know what? I really like this this meditation thing. It makes me feel better about myself and more peaceful and more in tune with who I really am. Or you know what? This diet that I'm trying is really working for me, right? Um, or or this diet isn't working for me. I'm definitely checking that one off the list. Like, you know, it it, it worked. It, it didn't work well for me in the end. But it it's about experimenting and trying versus staying stuck in your comfort yeah. zone and like wondering why you know you're, you a lot of people feel stuck in life and so be open to trying new things i would say love that thank you so much i know people are going to want to learn more about your journey and read your book and connect with you further yeah. so just to wrap up can you remind everyone where they can get more from you yeah super simple i keep everything consistent just fit number two fat number two fit that's all my social media handles facebook twitter instagram tiktok now um, YouTube, everything. Uh, my website's fit fit.com. You can find all my programs on there and my books. And I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again so much, Drew. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Christina. Have a good one. Huge thank you to Drew for coming on the podcast and sharing his incredible story. Don't forget, you can connect with him further on Instagram at fit to fat to fit and find more from him at fit to fat to fit.com. And don't forget, if you want exclusive behind the scenes access to content related to the podcast and my life, then join my private Instagram page, Wellness Realness Crew. All you have to do to get access to that is screenshot your iTunes rating and review and DM that to Wellness Realness Crew on Instagram. Request to follow and when I get the DM with a screenshot and your request to follow, I will accept it and you'll get access to the content. You can also always connect further with other podcast listeners in our free Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. I would love to see you there. That's going to be it for today's show. Thanks again so much for tuning in. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and I will chat with you again next episode. 